listening to the coffee hour i'm sarah gulseth i'm andy bates thanks to concordia university wisconsin for your support of the coffee hour you can find out more about concordia university wisconsin at cuw.edu live uncommon we are in the the days winding down of advent it is almost christmas and this time of year these last few weeks maybe or maybe maybe in the next few days many churches do services of lessons and carols And this year I thought, you know what, it would be fun to know why we actually do those things and where this service came from. So I asked my friend who knows all of these things (laughs) about these types of services, Ben Kologi, who joins us today to talk about lessons and carols. Ben Kologi is a member of Faith Lutheran Church in Plano, Texas, a highly active church organist and contributor to the Lutheran service book, Hymnal Companion. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Sarah and Andy. So let's talk about the origins of this Lessons in Carol service. What, what do you want to tell us about uh, the history of this, where it came from? Well, at the risk of boring you with a history lesson, I think it has <laughs> a slight history lesson has to precede this discussion, because your question is a very good one. And the tradition of Lessons in Carols comes from the Church of England in the latter part of the 19th century. But before we get to that, and again, I'm, I'm not trying to give you a history lesson here, and I'll make it as interesting as I can. But to know what the liturgical and hymnological practices were in the early 19th century in England. Now, we often think of English worship as very grand and having choirs and organs. And I think that probably comes from 20th century famous weddings and coronations and that sort of thing. (laughs) But that was not always the case. In fact, for centuries after the English Reformation, the Church of England liturgy was characterized by very little congregational singing. It was mostly psalm singing. Now, your listeners might say, well, there was John and Charles Wesley. They were always these great hymns. They have Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and Louis Comes with Scots Descending. But that, the, the Wesleys were in the Methodist tradition. And in fact, they mostly sang those outside. <laughs> so, and, and then there's Isaac Watts, who gives us joy to the world we sing this season. But And even though that's actually a song paraphrase, but Watts was from the dissenting or the nonconformist church. So his influence, too, in the Church of England was minimal. And so the liturgy and hymnody of the Church of England since the Reformation had involved really very few hymn singing, uh, hymn singing of hymns. Like I mentioned, it was mostly psalms. And by all accounts, these psalms were rather lugubrious, very slow and monotonous. I look up that word. <laughs> you, you, you can imagine. But, but two, there were, there were very simple vestments, no candles on the altar, no pyramids as we know them, and really no church choirs. And if the church choirs existed, they were often comprised of a group of amateur villagers um, who were, by some accounts, known to go out to the pub during the sermons. And oftentimes their place in the rear gallery was concealed by curtains on the railing. And, and, and really, there's some really quite neat folk music that comes from this homestyle tradition. In church music, we call it the West Gallery tradition. And this reference is the location of the balcony in the back where the choir sang, but they were not seen. I, I found this quote from Thomas Hardy, the novelist, and he describes these bands as First and foremost, as performers out to have a good time, and only secondarily, if at all, as committed to leading God's people in worship and praise, unquote. 
<laughs> and and fortunately, I guess, these these sort of musical ensembles faded out in the early 19th century and organs actually took over. And and Queen Victoria herself preferred simple worship with no processions, no candles, and with her clergy dressed in simple black, I guess maybe to match her. <laughs> but the, I, I just want to set that up because the there was a type of liturgical revival um, in 1820 a small collection of hymns appeared and was approved to be sung in the English church. And in the 1830s, we have what's known as the Oxford Movement. And uh, the Oxford Movement encompassed really many aspects of church life. But it involved returning to what its proponents saw as a rich, rich liturgical life. And they wanted to revive ancient liturgical practice, such as those I, I've mentioned, um, that really were not a part of English church life before. So candles, vestments, returning the sign of the cross. And of course, the question was what to do with a choir. And uh, choir and church music now took much greater importance. So we're talking about the 1830s and 40s. And I think the clergy were pretty clever here. <laughs> How are they going to improve the, the behavior of the choir? Well, you elevate their importance in worship. So instead of being hidden in the back, the choir was bestowed with a certain dignity by being vested. And they started processing and they took a place in the front with the clergy so that they could lead the musical portions of the service. I think maybe also so the clergy could keep their eye on them. <laughs> but some of the Oxford movement's critics would say that quite, you know, this, this enhanced the performance aspect, but really it, what it did was symbolize that the English church was bestowing their liturgy with dignity again and importance. There were, and, and there was a renewed appreciation for the Eucharist and the sacraments. And so in the second half of the 19th century, there was a great flourishing of hymnody. Some of these authors looked back to the Latin and Greek hymns and translated them into English for the first time, sometimes for you know, in centuries, the great English hymnal, Hymns Ancient and Modern, was published in 1861 and sold, uh, by some accounts, 35 million copies by the end of the 19th century. And so hymn writing flourished, as did singing, community choruses. And so by the late 19th century, you had really a much richer English liturgical and hymn tradition than you did even 50 years before. And that takes us to lessons and carols, because it first, I have to say, you may know lessons and carols from King's College. You know, it's on every Christmas Eve, and, and that's a part of it. But it actually started in 1880 by, his, his name was Archbishop Benton, as before he was Archbishop, but in, in Truro Cathedral for the 10 p.m. service on Christmas Eve. And Archbishop's, Archbishop Benton's son says this about the first Lessons and Carols service in 1880. He said, my father arranged for ancient sources a little service for Christmas Eve, nine carols and nine tiny lessons, which were read by various officers of the church, beginning with the chorister and ending through the different grades with, so this started in 1880, and I think possibly Bishop Benson wanted to discourage uh, different festive spirit that might rather be found in the Cornish pubs. And he wanted to bring people to church on Christmas Eve. And he was very interested in a creative sort of worship experience, not necessarily Eucharistic, 
but something that was more evangelical, um, that presented the gospel to people who wouldn't necessarily be there, who would be in the pubs instead. And that kind of gives us the basis for the lessons of carols that we get uh, from King's College Chapel, which started in 1918. Hmm. So, so we might know our um, lessons and carols from King's College, and that started in 1918. And you think of 1918, that was kind of an important year, Christmas Eve. Okay. That was one mm -hmm. month after the end of World War One. Yeah. So there is quite a bit of national angst, I guess you should could say. Yeah, I did some research. I found that about a third of the of the students at King's College had had died and wow. in the war. And Eric Milner White, who who developed the service in 1918, was dean of King's College, and he'd been an army chaplain. He'd been involved with this great trauma, and he thought too that this might involve some. Uh, some healing for the nation and, and and indeed it did so you know he had he had two goals for this first he wanted to grieve the loss of the young men from the city from the war and second he wanted to continue this reformation of liturgical practices he wanted to make clear the simple beauty of christian worship during christmas time so I guess I should say that Lessons and Carols is, is very self-explanatory. It's a very English title, you know, it kind of says what it is, you know, not, not a lot of, <laughs> not a lot of florid verbiage there. But so just to clarify what it is, it's, it's the scripture readings followed by carols or anthems. And I, I, I just want to consider though, that the format of Lessons and Carols really has an ancient precedent, this reading and singing. If you consider the Easter Vigil, right, the first part of which is a series of often seven readings, sometimes less, and a meditation of some sort, and the Cargations in Dark, right? So Lessons and Carols is, was originally intended 10 p.m. And this, this vigil sort of reading and singing and prayer continued through the medieval church. So I think that kind of formed the basis. There was, an, there was a historical awareness of this lessons and vigil that informed the creation of Lessons and Carols, if not in 1880, certainly by 1918. Now I'm curious what constitutes a carol, because you mentioned that there is, it sounds like there's a distinction between carols and anthems and maybe other pieces that are sung. What constitutes a carol? Well, that's a really good question. And I suppose hymnologists would argue about that, just like they argue about so many other things. When I referred, when, <laughs> never, never let a good argument go to waste. But what I was referring to was basically congregational singing. So early, you know, early lessons and carols would be congregational singing as opposed to an anthem, which would acquire peace. So, and, and we don't really know what the first carols sung were in 1880, although after 1918, that incarnation, we pretty much know what they were. And I, I, I guess I'd rather not get into the discussion of what a carol is because people disagree. <laughs> I mean, you can say it's a hymn about Christmas, but there's Advent carols too, you know, but the, I think a, a good point to take away from this is that the lessons and carols in King's College has established a set of Christmas carols that the world knows. And you ask someone off the street, what is a carol? Chances are they will give you the name of something that has been popular 
helping people rise by the King's College service. So, hmm. you know, what comes first, the chicken or the egg? What comes first, the <laughs> choir or the carol? You know. <laughs> Who knew that defining carols could be such a contentious topic? Right. I, I think I'll just leave it there. I don't want (laughs) to create any more problems. (laughs) I am, I have enjoyed this history lesson. So fascinating. It is. It's, I'm learning so much. And we have more to learn about lessons and carols with Benjamin Kologi in just a moment. You're listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golsa. You're a miracle. You know that, right? A living, breathing, one-of-a-kind miracle. You were created to stand apart, to share your gifts in the service of others, to make an uncommon impact in a common world. And at Concordia University, it's our mission to help you do that, to live uncommon. To learn more about Concordia, go to cuw.edu. Welcome back to the Coffee Hour. I'm Sarah Golseth. I'm Andy Bates. We are getting a fascinating history lesson and all things lessons and carols today. I am really enjoying this with Ben Kologi, a frequent guest to talk about these types of things. And uh, before the break, we were talking, you gave us a, a very interesting history of where this came from. I thought this was a much older tradition. So this is very fun to learn all these things that mm-hmm. I did not know previously. And, and you were talking about the, the readings and the songs, carols. What are some of the the typical carols that we may hear at the Lessons of Carols service? Right. So the carols are derived from the readings, as you might expect, as any good uh, worship planning would be. So Eric Miller White, who came up with the 1918 service, he said this. The main theme of Lessons of Carols is the development of the loving purposes of God. And he viewed the he, he thought this comes from the scripture rather than the music. So first we look at the scripture and the music pr- that proceeds from that, whether it's a congregational carol or choral anthem. So that's a really good way to start. And there are there are nine lessons, four are Old Testament, five are New Testament. Now, I, I should say that this is lessons and carols has different different churches do different things these days, and they've appropriated it in their own ways, and they change the readings, and that's certainly fine. But I'm talking here about the traditional readings. And there's four Old Testament that are prophetic, and then five New Testament that brings us into actually epiphany. So the Lessons and Carol service starts with Advent. Now, four Old Testament readings that refer to Advent and then five Christmas and then Epiphany. So you kind of cover three liturgical seasons and lessons and carols. It, I think it's important because it kind of stands outside of the church year, no matter what, when you do it, because it, it encompasses at least three, three parts. But the first lesson is always from Genesis, Genesis 3, 8 through 19. And it's, it's the fall of man in Genesis. And there's a number of hymns, all mankind fell when Adam's fall. In Adam, we have all been one. I think also of 362, of Sing of Christ. What Adam lost, none could reclaim, and paradise was barred until the second Adam came to mend what sin had marred. 
For when the time was full and right, God sent his only son. He came to us as life and light, and our redemption won. And then we usually proceed to Genesis 22, 15 through 18. And this is a God's blessing of Abraham. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and you have not withhold your only son, I will surely bless you. And Savior of the nations come is a very appropriate one for this. Also, creator of the stars of night, uh, maybe will come, will come, Emmanuel. Some of these hymns that I mentioned as specific to one reading can obviously be used with a couple of others. The third lesson is Isaiah 9, uh, 2, 6, and 6 to 7. Uh, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death. A light has dawned, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of course, I don't know if you're like, if you're like me right now, you're hearing Handel's Warren to us, a child is born <laughs> and playing in your head. And that's often associated with there. But also uh, from LSB, the people that in darkness sat or break forth, O beauteous heavenly light. And then uh, you kind of see that it's, it's like a good sermon. We've gone from the law to the gospel here. And then fourth lesson, Isaiah 11. The promised Messiah is foretold. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. And talks then further about the infant will play near the hole of the cobra. And the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountains. And of course, this is, you could say, comfort, comfort ye my people. That great rhythmic Advent chorale, or most especially Lo, how arose ever blooming, one of my favorites. Mm -hmm. And then of course we turn now after the fourth lesson to the actual Christmas story. And the fifth lesson is from God, Luke 1, 26. And this is the Annunciation to Mary. And of course, this is where the choir can sing any of your favorite settings of the Magnificat, my soul mm -hmm. now magnifies the Lord. Or you could sing uh, from heaven above to earth I come, the angel Gabriel from heaven came, so many of those great hymns. The sixth lesson is from Luke 2. That's the journey to Bethlehem and the birth of Jesus. Again, here you could sing from heaven above a little town of Bethlehem. It came upon a midnight clear. And you these lovely Christmas hymns. And the seventh lesson, Luke 2, 8 through 16. And here the, the, the angels are appearing to the shepherds watching over their sheep. They say, this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. Of course, the glory in excelsis there. So you could sing that great Gerhard hymn, All my heart again rejoices, mm -hmm. while shepherds watch their flocks by night in English hymn, O little hound Bethlehem, angels we have heard on high, angels from the realms of glory, hark the herald angels. And the eighth lesson is from Matthew. And this, of course, is the visit of the wise men to the Christ child. And you could sing, Out of Gladness, Men of Old, and We Three Kings, and you those great epiphany hymns. And the ninth lesson, which summarizes everything in a theological way that I guess only the Greeks could, is from John 1, 1 through 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This great prologue here. And the traditional hymn to sing with this 
is, of course, of the Father's love begotten. And when I plan my lessons and carols, I do a lot of variety and changing the carols from year to year, but I, I, I never change this one. You know, it, it is so appropriate for this prologue. Of the Father's love begotten, ere the worlds began to be, he is Alpha and Omega, he the source, the ending he, of the things that are that have been, and that future year shall see evermore and evermore. So that's a, it's a good theological conclusion for these lessons, which are kind of narrative-based otherwise. You mentioned that this really spans the, the text and, and the, the carols really spans three seasons of the church year. So I know tradition is that it's, it's on Christmas Eve, right? But it really could be any time between Advent all the way up through the 12 days of Christmas to Epiphany. Right. Yeah. Without being like heretical. <laughs> well, I mean, you, you can get argument about that. There is not unanimous agreement about that. But mm. indeed, it just from a descriptive point of view, churches have used lessons and carols during the second, third Sunday of Advent, you know, mm. as a separate service. I think it works really well as an evangelical type of service to invite your friends to who wouldn't come on Christmas Eve. Um, you know, that it gives them a chance to hear the story. I was in, uh, but it, 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 I, I think it's increasingly being done with success on Christmas Eve. I was at St. Paul's Lutheran in Coleman, Alabama in October, and the cantor there was telling me that they started a Lessons and Carols on Christmas Eve a couple years ago, and it's been very successful. They have lots of musicians come home for Christmas, so he's able mm -hmm. to do more and have a great Lessons and Carols service on Christmas. I think that may have to do with being a small town in Alabama because living in suburbia, all my musicians leave on, <laughs> you know, <laughs> leave on Christmas Eve and they go someplace else. So it's harder to pull that off. So mm -hmm. I think some, some of that is based on practicality. You know, it's a good time for your musicians, your choirs to do wonderful things, things that they can't normally do the rest of the church year. And maybe that means it's not on Christmas Eve. And I don't think we should feel guilty about that. But we've got 12 whole days of Christmas that we could, we could, <laughs> We could do lessons and carols every day for the every twelve days of Christmas. That, that and wouldn't keep you busy at all. You, you bring that up. I I think Christmas carols need our help. You know, yeah. anything we can do to center our congregations on to get them to know them. I don't think they're a a part of the culture in the way that they certainly were were in the nineteenth century. So anything we can do to help our kids learn them, our congregations sing them. Why not? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you've you've given us this wonderful lesson in lessons and carols, <laughs> and we have just about a minute, a minute and a half left. What if, if there's one more point that you wanted to make about <laughs> lessons and carols? What would it be? I think as a church musician, one of my my greatest memories have come from lessons and carols, and I think I could speak for other church musicians and to say that as well. I'm. It's one of the few times that we can do from heaven above to earth I come with all 15 verses. I remember doing it several times with choirs in all four corners of the church with different instruments, strings on one side, woodwinds on another side, and each each verse being differently performed in, in alternation with the congregation. Things that you that's harder to pull off on a Sunday morning or Christmas Eve, but that really emphasize the spirit of what Luther was trying to get at from heaven above to earth I I come in the text, but I think 
we church musicians have so many wonderful memories from lessons and carols that we really cherish. It's a tradition that's meaningful to so many of us. I have to agree. I have a lot of fond memories of of singing the uh, Once in Real David City solo when I was a young chorister at my home church growing up. That was always one of my favorite things. So yes, I fully agree. Lots of lots of good memories of doing this. And at Concordia Chicago, of course, the tradition of doing lessons and carols every year with capella and the strings and orchestra and, and all of the choirs. It's, it's, it's such a, a wonderful, memorable experience and to be able to sing all of these things and to hear the full story of Christmas all rolled up into one service. It's so great. Ben, this has been so fun. Uh, I really appreciate all of your your historical insight and your musical insights into, into lessons and carols. Thanks so much for being our guest today. You're welcome. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Sarah Golseth. I'm Andy Bates. The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah is a production of KFUO. To support the Coffee Hour and KFUO Radio, visit KFUO.org. You can also text KFUO to 41444 or send an email to gifts at KFUO.org. And you can call us at 800-844-0524. KFUO. Christ for you. Anytime. Anywhere.